0: Fellow movie lovers, and welcome
1: to Cult Fiction,
0: a podcast where we examine Hollywood's red-headed stepchildren. As a red-headed stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson.
1: And I'm Andy Boel. and today we are pulling back the curtain to review Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. Sky, Sky rockets, rockets in flight. Woo! Afternoon delight. Woo! Got- Afternoon delight. Which, of course, is German for... Whale's Vagina.
0: Are you going to do this the whole episode? <laughs> no, only when it's prudent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even mad. That's amazing.
1: Um, to get it out of the way, this is not my Oscar, but I think this is one of the most quotable movies of all time. Really? Really. Really. Just from sheer the amount of stupid, funny lines that, like if nothing else, you heard constantly for the next, like, five to ten years.
0: I I kind of have to agree with you because I didn't even realize that this is... Well, that escalated quickly. This is where that came from.
1: Exactly. Also, to get it out of the way and to address it up, up front, you hated this movie.
0: Oh, I hated this movie so
1: much. And I didn't think you would, like love this movie, but I didn't think it would inspire vitriol.
0: Okay. There's the part, there's a very, very, very expected part where I have anger at this movie because there's so much history about women in the newsroom and facing exactly this kind of treatment. Sure. That's there. And I will talk about that, but there's also the fact that it's just, Fucking
1: stupid. And I uh, I will not argue that point. I will merely disagree on whether that's a bad thing.
0: I, I am down for a dumb movie if the dumb movie is fun. Sure. This isn't fun. It's just stupid.
1: Is it stupid or is it one of the most chauvinistic films we've seen it's
0: stupid <laughs> okay all right all right it's chauvinistic and it's stupid none of the comedy is smart or intelligent
1: no it, it's it's truly not and like upon rewatching, i i hadn't seen anchorman for like easily 10 11 12 years and like the thing i noticed on this viewing was there are so many very clear bits that they just let people improv and that's where all the best lines and jokes comes from and it's very clear that they just like kind of did what they could in a very threadbare let's just get from one improv sequence to the nut to another kind of way in terms of like story writing
0: and that's fine but none of the humor makes my brain work. Which sure. is why I am the exact wrong audience for this movie. Yeah. It's very problematic on so many levels. Yes. Absolutely. But half of them are pertaining to my gender. And it's just stupid comedy. So I'm I'm like, I was never gonna be in for this movie ever.
1: Because
0: mm-hmm. it's just. At no point does it make me have to follow along. It's just presented in front of me, and it bores me.
1: Okay. Okay, I've got some questions about that that we can get into. But before we do that, (laughs) for those of you who missed the film, Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, is the story of legendary San San Diego newscaster, Ron Burgundy.
0: Not San Francisco.
1: Not San Francisco. I got that wrong.
0: Pointedly not San Francisco. It is very proud San Diego.
1: Very, very, very important that this is San Diego. Um, And it is the story of... Ron Burgundy and his Channel 4 news team living a life of 70s, escalated, exaggerated luxury before his entire worldview and way of being is challenged by a woman in the workplace who challenges him.
0: You know what movie did this same exact thing but was fun? What? American Hustle. Sure. Did the, like... I'm a man in the seventies and that's my entire personality. Mm-hmm. American hustle did that, but it made it smart and interesting because the writing was smart and interesting and everyone in it wasn't a two dimensional piece of fucking cardboard.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's very fair. Um, David O. Russell is a much better writer than Adam McKay. And that is the only thing you will ever hear me say Positive about David O. Russell, period. (laughs) I hope he burns in hell.
0: Oh, no. I will dig on that later off mic. (laughs) I wasn't expecting... There were, I will say, there were very small, very few, very far between moments of genuine charm in this
1: movie. Okay.
0: And almost all of them had to do with Baxter.
1: Well, Sure. Because Baxter is good boy. Baxter is a little furry gentleman. And he is one of the best parts of the movie. And and so to your point, that is kind of like the easiest, lowest common denominator way that like you can evoke some pathos from anything is to put in a little dog friend. And especially have him be a good little dog friend who like, You care about.
0: I love Baxter. And I am the person that works on. Right. So it's like that was it for me. It was charming to me that Ron Burgundy, after a long day, comes home and talks to his dog.
1: Sure. Sure. Meanwhile, I'm the kind of person where it works in the scene where Jack Black punts baxter off of a bridge into the san diego bay just because it is so bombastic and unexpected and and stupid because it is a very clear like dummy puppet dog that goes flying off the bridge. Which is the only
0: saving grace because I was about to riot.
1: Right. No, absolutely. Oh no, if this just had like a played for straight dog (laughs) murder sequence I would have warned you on air in the last episode.
0: By the way, there's a dog. It dies. It gets killed, and it's very clear that it's the dog that gets dead. Right. Not a body devil.
1: Oh, remember Toxic Avenger when they just threw some spaghetti on a golden retriever?
0: Um, (laughs) And remember that the golden retriever was blind?
1: I did not remember that.
0: The golden retriever was blind.
1: okay. Well, and here we are, 73 episodes later. (laughs) Uh, I mentioned him, but returning to cult fiction, just to round it out, we have returning to cult cult fiction, Fred Willard, who plays everybody at the newsroom's boss and, of course, was seen in uh, Waiting for Guffman, Ben Stiller, who we just saw in The Cable Guy, David Koppner, who we saw in Snakes on a Plane, and Jack Black from Mars Attacks. And several others. And, and several others, I'm sure. Those were the ones that like I caught and I knew. For a second, I thought Judd Apatow wrote this script, and he uh. didn't. It was Will Ferrell and Adam McKay who wrote this movie. So like for a second, I was like, oh, this is thematically tied together with Cable Guy because Judd Apatow. But no, because Judd Apatow is also a much better writer than... Adam McKay. And no disrespect to Adam McKay. The man has more money than I ever will because of stuff like this. But... Sure.
0: Well, tying it up to the cable guy, we have Jack Black.
1: Right. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So Jack Black, I think, is like he joins the illustrious company of that one friend of Roger Waters who is in all of his movies as like a three-time cult fiction alumni. Yeah. You pooped in the refrigerator and you ate a whole wheel of cheese. How'd you do that? It's actually, I'm not even mad. That's amazing. Uh, Speaking of cable guy, I like, I, I, so in my watching this movie, I want to be clear. I was just here along for the big dumb ride and like laughing along at all the bits I remembered. But somewhere in the back of my mind, I was also trying to like, find anything intelligent to say about this and I think that is a sunk fallacy problem because like this film comes so close to being a satire of 70s masculinity but then it doesn't actually follow through and the movie ends with Ron Burgundy being rewarded for basically just being Ron Burgundy and not having been actually challenged in any sort of way, and can go back to being exactly how he is, only he's slightly less toxically misogynistic yes, at correct. this point. But the only other thing I can like try to figure out is: is there any comparison you can make to to Cable Guy, like in, in sort of a double feature kind of sense?
0: The only thing that I can link this to cable guy with is that Christina Applegate's character Veronica, at one point, Ron Burgundy calls her Milady.
1: Uh-huh. And
0: I'm like, I was wondering first of all, is that where like Milady being a kind of
1: internet internet and, so, and Sally affectation came from? Like
0: oh, Milady, is that where the internet decided that's
1: how we treat women cool? You you know, I don't know the answer, but it it came out at exactly the right time for a bunch of, like, 13-year-olds to see that and have it gestate in their minds and then be, like, 16, 17, 18-year-olds actually trying that. (laughs) So I'd hazard a guess that, like, it probably, it certainly didn't take anything away from it.
0: I think it's... An interesting love story to news anchorhood, and the way that the cable guy is an interesting love story mm-hmm. to TV. Okay. Except this isn't a good love story to have. Like, cable guy is like, TV can bring us together, it can tear yeah. us apart, it's a complex relationship. This is just, here is the very dark side of anchorhood and the newsroom in general that hundreds of women had to deal with and cope through
1: well and like oh okay i I see your point i I was about to totally go off on a tangent in a different way but i think that is a very astute point because the one thing this does do in a way that you can look seriously at is show toxic misogyny in the workplace and the you don't even have to limit it to being a, a news person just like the concept of Female enter field that man do well. Ah, conflicts.
0: Yeah. Can I do can I do this rant and get it over with and move it aside and then we can actually talk about the movie?
1: <laughs> please, please do the rant.
0: Okay. At the end of the day, we have a woman featured in a movie, and her professional career is made living hell by a man. And by by multiple men who harass her, who physically abuse her in the workplace. She's attacked in the workplace by her toxic ex. She's pushed into a deadly situation by another colleague. And then at the end of the day, her prize, her reward is to be a sidekick for her dullard of a boyfriend as he excels through his career. Mm -hmm. And it's predictable. It's sad. It's underwhelming. And especially since it's a story that, while fictionalized, represents the lives of hundreds of women who went through the same treatment for decades in their career. So I'm thinking about Katie Couric. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about Barbara Walters. I did some research on this. Barbara Walters was told by Don Hewitt, who is not a household name, but he's basically the guy who would go on to do 60 Minutes. Okay. Um, that she would never make it as an on-air presence because of her unusual speech patterns and because she relatively looked ordinary.
1: Mm, sure.
0: And so she wrote in her 2008 memoir, Audition, that it was her legs, not her skills, that persuaded the head of a small Manhattan advertising agency to give her a job. And then she quit that job because her boss became too physically
1: intimate sure and and yeah i mean like they they play it up for comedy and this is absolutely one of the ways this movie aged horribly but also probably the one way i want to say the one way that it did they knew it wasn't going to age well in the moment but like i think they were okay with you get all these comedic sequences of sexual assault being like lightly committed to veronica or you have the scene where like they're they're all yelling at fred willard and there's the line about how female menstruation will attract bears which like is shown at it's presented as a joke but literally it is that sort of thing we're like no people used to believe this And when the woman was having her moon, you had her stay in, like, the outhouse in case there was something going to attack you.
0: Can I tell you my favorite, very, very, very favorite story of all time? Please. Please do. Because you said people used to.
1: Hmm. Okay. I don't like where this is going now.
0: I think it was in 2008. Some woman... I, I am doing myself, my gender, and this person an entire disservice by not remembering... Her name. But she was being sent up to the space station. Okay. And NASA didn't know how many tampons to send this woman with. She was going to be there for two days.
1: Mm.
0: And NASA said, how much is too many? Can we send you with a hundred? Is that enough? (laughs) Fucking literal rocket scientists do not know... How periods work.
1: Hmm. That's not good. No. (laughs) That's not what you want.
0: (laughs) This isn't an exaggeration. Um, I will say there's another Barbara Walters quote where she mentions, um, do I have to tell you what I have been through as a woman working in journalism? I went through hell. A lot of discrimination, everything you can think of. And this is the point that specifically reminded me of Anchorman. In the beginning, all of us got woman type stories, like covering the first lady instead of the president. I would gather the information and have to give it to somebody else and not get the byline. Or if I covered the White House, Capitol Hill, the Pentagon, or the State Department, I had to keep the seat warm for the big male correspondent. It's better now, but women have still not reached the level of parity because management is still white male
1: oriented emphasis on man in the word management yeah the thing that just i have like the most it it makes me think of it's maybe not the most comparable thing but i think about joan rivers Mm -hmm. and say what you will about joan rivers and especially late in life joan rivers and think what you will of her but like coming up in her career joan rivers was a comedic revolutionary Mm -hmm. and absolutely went through like All of the same challenges and stigma and nobody actually wanted to give her a serious chance, much like you see with Veronica Corningstone.
0: I I totally agree. I think there's people who have come up in this industry because they worked for it and they scrapped for it. And there are people who came up in this industry because of their gender and because of their race.
1: Yeah, and there are people who are just trying to make it in this industry and follow their dreams and do whatever they want to do and are still being marginalized, attacked, sexually assaulted, or just like having gross shit done to them by men.
0: So it was important to me that I pulled a fact- just not out of 1970-whatever. Sure. In 1995, Connie Chung was removed as an NBC news anchor because Don Rather had a hissy fit at her
1: Mm. for covering
0: a story that he wanted.
1: Which they probably, like, took that historical moment and were like, let's throw that into the movie and we can have Will Ferrell act like he's throwing a bitch fit as Ron Burgundy, And, like, that's how we'll move the plot together.
0: Well, and it's like Death to Smoochie in that way because it's
1: Mm.
0: there, but for ten more minutes of turning the satire and making it pointed. It could have been a really, really smart movie if we had one more turn. Of this is actually, I need to have this recognition or... Ron Burgundy gets his comeuppance, but at the end, he's the news anchor for Planet Earth, and he has his kicky lawn sidekick sitting next to him, not saying a damn word.
1: Right, and that's what I was saying about how, like, there isn't an actual desire to examine or be satirical or, like, challenge this idea in any way. It's, it's oh, ha-ha look at how like funny the man is and like bad stuff happened to the man but like look at the man he's doing he's doing man stuff and this amuses me another man who this movie was written for i keep yeah. going into like caveman speak but i think it like <laughs> kind of helps prove my point for me brick are you just looking at things in the office and saying that you love them i love lamp do you really love the lamp or are you just saying it because you saw it
0: i love lamp I love Lamp.
1: But you bring up Death to Smoochie, and that actually uh, lets me tie into another thing I wanted to talk about, which is the other way that I compared this to Death to Smoochie. In Go that on. both of these movies make it a plot point to use somebody who is mentally handicapped for comedy. That was just a lot. And the, was very upset. It's very upsetting. It's the other way that this absolutely, it's the other big way that this absolutely has not aged well. From the word go, we're introduced to Steve Carell's character, Brick Tamlin. And like his third or fourth line is to casually throw out that he's fill in the blank. If you've seen the movie, like, you know, he's mentally handicapped. And Steve Carell, I almost guarantee you improved that line and just threw it out among like 10 other lines that he gave. And they were like, that one's amazing. Let's go with that. That's the one we keep. That's the one we're going to keep. And unlike Stinger Dunn in Death to Smoochie, I would argue if you take away that line... Steve Carell's brick is the funniest part of this movie. He has all of the best lines, he has all of the funniest moments, and it is all so empirically ruined by the fact that the character is literally played and stated and referred to multiple times in the film as being mentally handicapped.
0: Yes, I agree with you, and He's still dumb. So I I can't see it from the lens where we just get him being kind of weird and kind of clueless.
1: Well, sure. Yeah. It's the same thing as um, Death to Smoochie. We're like, he can be dumb. He can be dumb. That's fine. Death to Smoochie does it worse because they just say he's got a lot of concussions or... I'm, I'm mixing up what we were saying would be a punch up to that script and what they actually say. But, like, in Death to Smoochie, they make it really clear that, he is, that Stinger is a mentally deficient character. And, like, for this one, Brick can just be really dumb. You change two lines in this film, and Brick is just a comedically stupid person, which would be fine.
0: Yes. But we have to make it Rick is of a certain IQ, and we have to make it that he's mentally not at the same level. Right. And it's just so easy, and that's the problem with this movie is that it takes easy street and it goes,
1: cool. Sure, absolutely. And, like, I keep talking about how there's absolutely no interest in – Examining this any deeper and, and getting into any actual satire. And, like, it's not like stupid push-the-envelope offensive comedies haven't existed before this movie and continue exist into the modern day. But I do really feel like if Anchorman came out in 2023, they would do some, like, A24 ending where it actually has a point mm-hmm. and like maybe Ron is hilariously murdered by bears <laughs> and they make it work somehow.
0: Well, they came to the newsroom because Veronica was on her period.
1: Oh, uh, sure.
0: Cause that's how periods work, Andy. Right. Do you need a hundred tampons? You're going to be in space for two days.
1: <laughs> but this movie just doesn't care. And we wanted Clearly, because this movie was a, a huge success, we wanted our comedy to be very easy and dumb. And the smartest thing I can like say about this is maybe there was something about like the post-9-11 desire to just have entertainment. But that's, that's stretching it in a couple of different ways.
0: I mean, you could make that point because this is also the same year that Napoleon Dynamite came out. Mm. And Napoleon Dynamite is similarly just stupid.
1: It very much is. Napoleon Dynamite is a movie that would absolutely be an A24 release if it came out today.
0: <laughs> well, I think Juno would be. Yeah. Because that's it's also then as well. It's like Juno, Napoleon Dynamite, and Anchorman all came out the same year. And they were all of the same mm. ilk of just like, We're going to make a movie. Interesting. Okay. I think. Let me fact check myself on that because I will feel very terrible if I am wrong. Juno was
1: 2007.
0: Okay. Lies. Lies. I think it's just, I think it's the same year as Napoleon Dynamite because of the orange and white stripes. And that's what I associate.
1: Uh, Okay. Well, okay. So I just looked it up. If you look up 2004 comedies, we were looking at Napoleon Dynamite, White Chicks, which is, like, absolutely along the same lines as Anchorman. Dodgeball, which is a better movie.
0: Oh, I've never seen it.
1: It, it, It's a better movie. It's a good sports movie parody kind of thing. Um, And then, like... Adam Sandler's 51st Dates, which, depending on who you ask, was the last good Adam Sandler comedy.
0: So, not a great year, is what I'm hearing.
1: I mean, certainly a mixed year. I mean, yeah, it's like this is the same year that. Sideways came out, which is a super cerebral comedy, and Without a Paddle, which is stupid as all hell. This is the same year that we had The Life Aquatic, which is my least favorite Wes Anderson film. Correct. And Eurotrip, which is like one of the (laughs) Uh, 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 triumvirate uh, uh. of of sex comedies of that era.
0: Okay, so, you know what, Andy? Andy, okay. Okay, Andy, Andy, okay. (laughs) Let's take... Your 9-11 thing. These all came out in 2004. Mm-hmm. Backspace them two years because that's roughly how long what production takes. Yeah. So they're being made in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. So there is something to that of like, let's just, you know what, let's just fucking turn their brains off.
1: I truly think there is if you just look at it from, like, a a 50-foot lens, you know? Sure. Yeah, I, I can see that.
0: And then you zoom in, and you have this piece of shit.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Um, this piece of shit, which has Asheville representation, so that Woo! that's fun. There, there's a line about how Veronica Corningstone did work in Asheville, so that, that was a treat that I had totally forgotten about.
0: Which was fun because she does say later that she's been spending years working on eliminating her accent. Right. So I don't know. If, she says something about, like, I've spent years maintaining this perfect not-accent. And I was like, uh, that's, that's fair. People in Asheville... Tend to have an accent.
1: Makes me wonder if Christina Applegate has like oh, an Appalachian accent.
0: Interesting. Where is Christina Applegate from? Let's see, shall we? I don't actually think she's from the South,
1: but maybe. Born that's... in Hollywood. Oh. Born in straight up Hollywood, LA.
0: Oh, she's a Nepo baby. I forgot.
1: I yeah, you know. Okay. Yeah, now. <laughs> In any case, um, let me ask you this, because this is something that I I was kind of wondering about. So there's, I I thought this was Judd Apatow. It was going to be a much better question when I could ask, like, does this ruin Judd Apatow for you? But instead, what I'm going to ask is, like, have you seen any of the other, like, bombastic Will Ferrell, Adam McKay films? Have you seen Talladega Nights? Once. Or Step Brothers? No. Or um, there's a basketball one that I can't even remember, so nope. I doubt anyone has I've seen, seen that movie. Elf. Okay.
0: And the saving grace of Elf is that it's Christmas and sure. Santa and it's a Christmas movie, and you know I'm a sucker for Christmas movies. Well, and
1: and Will Ferrell is like trying a lot harder in Elf. I I feel like to like yeah. actually be enjoyable and it's not written by the same person adam mckay's career as a writer is absolutely insane to me because he just kept partnering with uh, will ferrell and making these like bombastic crazy comedies he did anchorman 2 which we are never gonna watch you don't need to know it exists people he he did stuff for saturday night live and then all of a sudden he like took a pivot and he wrote the script for the original Ant-Man and The Big Short and oh. The Vice and Don't Look Up. Oh. Yeah. Okay. The same guy who wrote Don't Look Up wrote Anchorman. I woke up this morning and I shit a squirrel. I mean it, literally. Hell of it is. Damn thing's still alive.
0: I can actually see it because I feel like Don't Look Up is a do-over. Don't Look Up is the anchorman that means something. Okay, okay. Because it it is the dumb, stupid movie that then proceeds to make a twist and a really compelling commentary on who we are as humans when crisis hits. Well, okay,
1: so there you go. There's my point of like... They're trying to do something 20 years later, and now it's like, oh, well, let's actually have a real concise message other than, well, wasn't that a fun time? Yeah. Uh, Oh. We did it. Am I making this film even the slightest bit better for you?
0: No, you're making Don't Look Up even better. For oh, okay,
1: me. all right, I'll take it.
0: Which is a very good movie, and I highly recommend it, but it's also deeply traumatizing and will make you think too much about your life and how you would spend your last days as a human.
1: Fair enough. Would you spend your last days as a human... Getting into a back alley brawl with like six other news teams.
0: With Ben Stiller as a Latinx person when we have Fred Armisen? Yeah, that is
1: the craziest thing to me <laughs> watching this. Like, they make Ben Stiller Latinx for no goddamn reason, and we see Fred Armisen earlier in the film.
0: And he's just like, oh, hey, I'm here but we're going to have Ben Stiller like pull out a butterfly knife in nope. a back alley fight.
1: Come on, stand, bitches.
0: <laughs> Dying. Um,
1: yeah, that's
0: that's so ridiculous.
1: You texted me specifically to say how stupid and bad you thought that particular sequence was.
0: It's so bad. And that is
1: one of my favorite parts of the movie.
0: It's so bad. Okay, let me go through the points of the movie that were worth commenting on. Because half of my notes were like, women, women,
1: women in news, <laughs> right. women
0: in news. Okay, moment number one. Ron Burgundy wears a headgear to bed. Indeed. Comment from my teenhood: I identified, but also it's very cruel and unusual to have Baxter also be wearing a headgear. I was about to say,
1: <laughs> Baxter matches in every way.
0: And it's perfect. Asheville NC, the flute out of the sleeve, mm. and then, okay, Andy, we need to talk about the animated scene.
1: <laughs> Let's. Why? Why not? Why? Why not? It's so, it is 2.11. The speakers go up to 11. It is, it is, what is the most over the top thing we can do Let's throw in a completely random 30-second animated scene.
0: Where how we portray sex is our two main characters wearing neck-to-toe white, including white turtlenecks Mm. and white-heeled cowboy boots, riding unicorns over a rainbow. I've had some great sex in my life. None of it's been that.
1: Sure, and like... That, honestly, is the one moment in the film that stuck out the most to 12-year-old Andy the first time I saw this.
0: (laughs) 12-year-old Andy was like, yeah, that's what sex is going to be like.
1: (laughs) Well, just like, okay, I'm conflicted about it now because, like, Veronica Corningstone's character pretty much dies at that moment because she, like, gives in to the seduction of Ron Burgundy. Sure. And... The line reading between Will Ferrell and Christina Applegate of "Oh, we're riding down to the end of the rainbow. Do me on it." Lives rent free in my head.
0: Good to know. <laughs> so glad I knew that about you. Now,
1: so I, I, the animated sequence is bizarre and has a soft spot in my heart. It, it's, you know what it is. It's a holdover from Monty Python style comedy, uh... which holy shit! As I say that, it becomes clear to me that Adam McKay is like a huge Monty Python fan because like this could have been a goddamn Monty Python movie if they were all a bunch of Americans working out of California in two thousand four.
0: Oh, see, here's what you need for that to work. You need charming British men in their 50s wearing extremely bad clothing and all of them having very bad teeth doing it for it to be fucking charming.
1: Sure, no, I, I agree with that. Paul Rudd can be charming. Oh, he God. chooses not to be in this film.
0: <laughs> I do like the... Um, i do like the jets sharks mm-hmm. moment and even before they fought in the back alley i was turning to alex as we were watching this and going yeah. and then he's like just wait yeah just just wait until this happens and then it happens and they get in a back alleyway fight which is preposterous. It is
1: preposterous. It's very preposterous, and I think it's good. I'm going to add one thing to your list of good things in this film, and that legitimately is the inclusion of Fred Willard getting to like play it a little bit more in an authority figure. Because we've seen Fred Willard do acting. We've mm-hmm. seen Best in Show. We've seen um, uh, Waiting for Guthman. We've seen him be, like, a lot more of a, like, lowbrow character. Yeah. And it's not that Fred Willard is lowbrow in Anchorman, but it's because he is everyone's boss. He gets this position of power. And the best moments in the film to me are the two moments where you overhear him on the phone with first his, like, his school's mother superior talking about German porn, And then the second one is a real throwaway line of like, Kevin, just let the marching band go. We can sweep this under the rug. And you know he just had that ready in his mind. And all they had to do was turn the camera on and he just let the best lines in the movie go.
0: And that's why Fred Willard is my favorite member of the newsroom.
1: Okay, perfect. I was going to ask you this.
0: Yeah, it's... None of the main four. Sure. It's certainly not fucking Veronica because she's fine, but she's vapid at best. And the moment someone like plays a flute at her, she's like, oh my God, my panties are melting. (laughs) Flute is not the most sexual instrument, Veronica.
1: But when you shoot fire out of it.
0: I guess. I
1: guess.
0: See, all Ron Burgundy would need to seduce me would be like, here's my dog, Baxter. I love him. I would be like, oh, you have a dog? <laughs> oh, you love him?
1: I mean, we don't know what go- what his moves were at the house parties that he had for years and years before this film started. So,
0: Well, apparently at his house parties, he just had to show up and be like, hi, I'm Ron Burgundy and I'm here. That's fair. Because that's what we see of him.
1: Indeed. Indeed.
0: <laughs> the one thing also, circling back to the scene with Jack Black where he
1: punts oh, yeah. the dog, yeah.
0: he throws a burrito... Out of his car,
1: he throws up a a hat, full half of burrito. It's that that line also lives in my head right for you. Oh, Baxter, this burrito is delicious, but it is filling. Throws half a burrito out of a moving vehicle, hits Jack Black in the face. Who
0: does that?
1: Ron Burgundy, master of excess. This burrito is delicious, but it is filling.
0: <laughs> okay. This wouldn't be a problem if he was eating Carl's Jr. It wouldn't be. Because Carl's Jr., I don't care how filling it is, you finish that burger. You finish that whatever you're eating.
1: Well, even in the world where he still throws out half of a delicious Carl's Jr. burger into Jack Black's face, the scene changes because Jack Black is then, like, grateful and thankful that he has been given delicious Carl's Jr. and it's worth his motorcycle crashing.
0: And he's fine with it. And he's like, oh, my God, what is this delicious burger? And Ron Burgundy says, that, my friend, is Carl's Jr. (laughs) And then the whole movie just ends there. Indeed. And that's a better ending than this movie actually has.
1: I I can't fault you for that one.
0: (laughs) I couldn't even write for the last half hour of this movie because it bothered me so much.
1: Well, and, and yeah, I mean, like. There's very little in the last half hour of this film that I think is worth commentating on. Like, Blinkin' You'll Miss some Danny Trejo. And like, genuinely a funny moment is when he like calls for the news crew and the camera just pans two feet and they're all playing pool.
0: And they're like, we've been here we've the whole time.
1: We've been here. <laughs>
0: That's very um, that's very Blues Brothers when you pan out and you see yeah. the whole band was oh, in the yeah.
1: room. Yeah, exactly. Oh, how much of the good parts of this movie are just cannibalized from other better films? All of it. Uh.
0: Literally all of it, Andy.
1: <laughs> One thing that wasn't cannibalized because like it they weren't enough in their careers, you have a bling and you'll miss it Paul F. Tompkins.
0: Ah, Mr. Peanut Butter.
1: Yeah, Mr. Peanut Butter being the announcer for the cat fashion show. Oh, cute! And then this is the other reason I thought it was a Jet Apatow film. You have baby Seth Rogen as the camera guy. Yes,
0: you do. And so. he's like, I don't know. I'm just gonna pan to whatever.
1: Yeah, exactly. I'm just getting a paycheck because I have not made knocked up yet and achieved superstardom. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's kind of fun. It's a fun cast. I wish they were given a better script.
1: Well, part of the point was just like, okay, guys, here's the, like, loose beats of the scene. We're just going to let you go.
0: Well, Alex asked. He was like, well, how much of the parts that bothered you were improv? And I was like, I don't know, Alex. I don't have the script. I can't tell you. But... You can kind of tell which parts were improv.
1: I don't know. I legitimately think all of the best and actual funny parts of the film were improv. Like, it wasn't improv to have a six news team back alley brawl, but like, PBS or public news radio, no commercials, no mercy, probably was improv.
0: Sure. And the. Pop out wall of perfume. Yeah. Was not improv.
1: They just let Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd go. Mostly Will Ferrell, because he's the one carrying that particular scene.
0: Oh, I don't know. I think Paul Rudd, with his, like, no, I'm going to pull out this one. That's fair. It's jungle sex, or like a fucking whatever. Sex Panther. Sex Panther, which 60% leads,
1: of the time, it works every time, which is another thing that lives in my head rent-free.
0: Okay, the quote from that area that lives in my head rent-free is it smells like Bigfoot's dick, which is just perfection.
1: Which, especially for like the lowbrow South Park watching Beavis and Butthead grew up on like <laughs> clientele of the film, that's the best line in the movie. It's so evocative. What does Bigfoot's dick smell like? Everyone has their own answer.
0: Elderberry and humus of leaves, duh.
1: (laughs) So that ties me back all the way to my, my point I made at the beginning of this film. It is not my Oscar, but I do think this is like if not the most quotable comedy of like the early 2000s it's up there yeah. i i started high school in 2006 you started high school in 2006 didn't i, I was yes awesome. no
0: you did yes yes accurate okay Continue. i started
1: high school in 2006 and for at least up until my sophomore year You would still regularly hear people just throwing out random anchorman quotes. It created a meme. And that is my quote of the movie. Well, that escalated quickly. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah.
0: Okay, but what is your Oscar since since it's not
1: most quotable? Fair, fair enough. Every episode of Cult Fiction, we give films Oscars, even films that we despise, or in this case, one of us despised. Uh, And I would like to give Anchorman the Oscar for most 2004 movie ever. So more than Napoleon Dynamite. More than Napoleon Dynamite, because there was also something cruel about the comedy of 2004. I'm thinking about Mind of Mencia. I'm thinking about Drawn Together. I'm thinking wow. about South Park being at like the first peak South Park was ever at. Sure. We wanted our, our comedy dumb and offensive and like loud and boom. And, and that's what this movie is.
0: Interesting. I want to pull that apart from a societal level from the point from the perspective of 9-11, like, did we want it to hurt so that we were prepared for the rest of the world just hurting all the
1: time? <laughs> Maybe. I I laugh just because, like, I I do actually deeply enjoy how we can turn this into a serious conversation. I just think, like, collectively the pain, the pain of, like, that event and also, like, the war that started and the terror and the fear and the pain of our gestalted zeitgeist, we all just went, no, I just want to laugh at something. I don't give a fuck what it is. Because mm. you can you can make the same comparable between like the Vietnam War and Blazing Saddles. Interesting. Traumatic, like long-term traumatic events towards an entire populace after you, like, you take a minute, you breathe, you get through it. Then, like, you just want to laugh at dumb shit.
0: No, that makes sense because war wars and movies have always kind of interbrated. I was talking about Gone with the Wind this morning, which, of course, led to me Googling Gone with the Wind, and I remembered that it came out in 1947. hmm It came out in 1947. We had a Civil War movie come out in 1947. Sure. That movie took at least two years, if not three years, to make. So you really have to think about, okay, we're sitting there and we have a scene. You've never seen Gone with the Wind, which I will remedy at some point in my life. But you have a scene where it's just bodies littered across as far as you can see. Yeah. And so I think there is something about wars informing film. It's just there's Gone with the Wind and then there's Anchorman. Sure. And I'm not saying every movie has to be Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind is informed by a lot of fucking racism.
1: And... It's not that we only make stupid comedies when we have, like, some trauma to process. Sure. But I think you can say that that is when sometimes, like, they are the most popular.
0: Yeah, because brain just goes burr, and it's nice, and it's cozy, and I don't have to think.
1: Exactly.
0: Because, but the world as I know it is crumbling under my fingertips, and we're in a war now, and I don't
1: know how to cope with that. And then, like, we just didn't leave that part of our brains, and we never have sense, and that's why it doesn't work anymore. But what's your Oscar? Okay. Uh, my Oscar is for Best Boy. <laughs> for Baxter?
0: For Baxter. He is the best boy. He is the best boy, and he is known by all of the bears, and that just...
1: that <laughs> is That is the thing that knowing you hadn't seen this film, like... I kept in the back of my mind, and especially when you were texting me being like, he got kicked off a fucking bridge. <laughs> and I was like, just wait, just wait.
0: Just wait. He'll talk to a bear, and it'll be worth it.
1: The sequence where you learn Baxter had a whole adventure, which is probably a better kids movie, and, like, is a friend to the bears, is mwah.
0: Is mwah, especially since talking about this movie just borrowing from other better movies baxter's adventure is basically homeward bound right it's just baxter being like well i'm here now i'm find my way home <laughs> to my human who's horribly offensive
1: it's horribly offensive but Loves me and puts me in little footy pajamas, so.
0: And a, and a headgear.
1: And headgear. He
0: wants Baxter to have
1: nice teeth. Indeed. So, no, I think that's an appropriate Oscar. It makes sense that that is the thing you would point to in this film. You did not like as the best thing. Yes. But you know what we can always point to, no matter how much we hate a film as the best thing? Bacon. Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon.
0: is in our town
1: at time of recording is somewhere in the asheville area
0: and i am now two degrees from kevin bacon (laughs) cub eyes kevin bacon donated three of his personal guitars in his personal collection to the music academy where i took voice lessons Ah. before the pandemic and in the photo that was printed in our local newspaper, because that's how boring news is in Asheville, which right. is why I live here. He was sitting in the chairs that haven't changed in four plus years, which means, in all likelihood, my butt has touched the seat that Kevin's bacon butt has also touched. My butt touched Kevin's Bacon's
1: butt. We're butt buddies. By, by the transitor property, indeed.
0: Oh my god, my butt touched his butt.
1: So by that by that logic, I am three degrees away from Kevin Bacon, which means you win, period.
0: Always! <laughs> but from an actor perspective, I also do have a Kevin Bacon.
1: Okay, and what is that?
0: Well, okay, so we also have Blink and You Miss it, Catherine Hahn. Yes. Because she's... Oh.
1: Perfect. And her and Chris Parnell got the, like, you're my friends from Saturday Night Live. Come be in my movie. Come
0: be in my movie. Well, she was also in a movie called Revolutionary Road.
1: Oh, I didn't know she was in that.
0: With Michael Shannon.
1: Mm -hmm. And Michael
0: Shannon, as we all know, was in The Woodsman with Kevin Bacon.
1: Absolutely. Okay, wonderful. I was also able to do a actorly Kevin Bacon in two. Um... What I was originally going to say was Paul Rudd was in Ant-Man, but that's before I realized in real time Adam McKay also wrote Ant-Man. So, like, you can do this either way. Paul Rudd was in Ant-Man with Corey Stoll, the bad guy from Ant-Man. Sure.
0: Yes, yes, yes.
1: And Corey Stoll was in what I will champion always as the last good Johnny Depp film, Black Mass, with Kevin Bacon.
0: Uh yay
1: we did it In that way we are tied but in a different way you have won because your butt has touched kevin bacon's butt oh my god oh my god
0: i'm gonna live on that high for the rest of my
1: life we were talking about this and i was like i bet if we found him we could get him on the show but only once and you were like, okay, maybe. And I was like, what an episode to get Kevin Bacon for. I
0: was terrified when you knocked on my door today. I was terrified you were gonna like, I was gonna open it and Kevin Bacon was gonna be with you and I was just gonna faint on the spot.
1: I do not have that much game or chill until like, I pull Kevin Bacon.
0: Oh, Andy, I'm sure you have a lot of game. Just Kevin Bacon is all the game we need.
1: Exactly. Which is why we play it every episode. (laughs) Which is why we play it every
0: episode. Also in every episode of Cult Fiction, we leave our hands in the fate of the Hollywood crypt with the help of a random number generator to to select our next movie.
1: That's right. We go to the Cult of Movie list, which is a curated list of 275 films, all of which we hope will be cult. For the record, we didn't talk about it much. I think Anchorman, I'm willing to concede, is not cult.
0: Fucking thank you.
1: It made too much money. See, I, I was trying to do this thing where like, no, 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 it was so big, it came back around again as cult. But I, I've since realized that that's just me trying to make
0: that fit. Let's hope you don't try to make other things fit. Next time, what are we watching?
1: Next time on Cult Fiction, we will be watching what I hope is a certifiable cult film. And that is going to be film number 187 out of 275 films. And number 187 is, in my opinion, a cult film. Speaking of returning to the triple feature Cult Fiction Club, next time on Cult Fiction, we are going to be going back into the wacky world of Terry Gilliam as we watch one of my favorite fucking movies ever, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas.
0: Well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. You can follow us on Twitter at Cult CultFictionCast. Or you can keep up on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now.
1: But for now, join us twenty miles out of Barstow when the ether hits, as we watch the Hunter S. Thompson adaptation, Terry Gilliam's *Fear and Loathing* in Las Vegas. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Boel. <laughs>